right, you can turn to the Song of Solomon. I'll be preaching from there today again. But this is last time for a while. So we're at the end of, of Song of Solomon, at the end of that book, the very last verse. We're doing last things everywhere, aren't we? The last chapter in the Confession, the last uh, chapter in the Bible, and the last verse in the Song of Solomon. We've seen that this song is about, the Song of Solomon is about the, the greatest theme of all, the love of Christ and His church, the love that they have for one another. And that's what makes it the Song of Songs. This mutual love is presented to us under the analogy of marriage. After this song was written, this beautiful allegory became a recurring theme among the prophets and apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the Lord himself. He spoke of a relationship with him as a marriage and of himself as the bridegroom that had come for his bride. As a result, anyone with even a slender acquaintance with the Bible knows that the church is called the bride of Christ. Her disobedience is referred to in the Bible often as adultery to her Lord, to whom she is betrothed, and her fidelity to him, to, to him marks her out as a chaste virgin to the Lord, keeping the covenant that she made of, in the betrothal. The New Testament speaks most often of her as a betrothed bride who is not yet married it is, you can call it married to be betrothed because you've made a covenant, but not, um, has not made the promise, has made promises of fidelity, but who is being prepared for her husband, like a betrothed bride being prepared for the wedding that we read about in, in Revelation at the end. So, uh, for example, in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, we're told that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That is exactly what he is doing right now. He is preparing his bride to live with him. Like I mentioned last week, it's sort of like it was with Esther, where she had she and the other women that were coming before the king to be his um, wives, I guess it was a polygamous thing, that they were um, given beauty treatments before they were presented to the king for some time. We're having a beauty treatment for Jesus Christ as he is sanctifying and preparing his whole church, gathering and preparing her for that day. His bride, as we've seen, has many members. And he is gathering each one, and he is bringing all of us together as the bride to completion and maturity by his wise and gracious work over the years. I'll be saying more about that as we look at these things today. But in Revelation 21, by the way, it says on your outline, uh, chapter 12, it's supposed to be 21. The numbers got switched there. Revelation 21, 2 and 3, John sees a vision of her on the last day. He says, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the church is a city 
but she is, the whole city is one bride. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, the dwelling place of God. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So the bride is brought to live with her husband. In Revelation 21, 9, John goes on to describe how the angel who completes the last of the plagues that fall upon all the earth in the vision that he sees the angel that is uh, finishing the last of the plagues, that uh, that angel comes and says to him, okay, you've seen what happens to the destruction of the wicked. And he says, come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And so you see the language here that, you know, the church is referred to as the bride. This is who the true believing church is. She is the bride, the lamb's wife. She is a great city, is repeated again in verse 10. It says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Last week, we looked at the second to last verse in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 13. And just to review a little bit, because it goes very much with what we're looking at this week, in that verse, Christ speaks to us as believers, the church, as his betrothed bride. He addresses us, you will recall, as you who dwell in the gardens. As his betrothed bride, he has planted us. We're told in the New Testament that we've been planted by him. He has planted us in his garden that we might grow to maturity as his bride, his betrothed bride, and that we might bring forth much fruit in preparation for our marriage to him, for living in his father's house with him. He describes how our companions, the other members of the body who make up the bride, Listen for our voice. You remember that? They want to hear our prayers. They, hear, they have ears to hear the things that the bride says. If we, one another, as we speak of our Lord, you hear someone talking of the Lord, you want to, what are they saying? Someone's testifying of what he has done for them or talking about his grace or what they have learned of him in the word of God. Maybe they're bringing praise to him. Maybe there's prayers. God's people, have an, they're attracted to that. They have ears. They want to listen to it. They want to hear the word. They want to come to church and hear the word of God preached and join in the prayer and praise of God's people. And we edify one another in this way. The bride edifies herself in love. That's how the scripture speaks of it. One member it helps another member grow and vice versa. Uh, then, we went, then he went on to say to us in that, in that verse, verse 13, let me hear your voice. Now, that was very encouraging to know that he loves to hear our praises and prayers too, not just our companions, our fellow members, but Jesus wants to hear these things too. We have seen in the Song of Solomon how he finds our prayers and cries to be irresistible, like he can't turn them away. When he had withdrawn from us for a time, I'll say more about this a little bit later, uh, when he had turned away from us for a time to humble us, and we began to speak of our desire for his return and to look for him, he tells us how he was overcome. 
how he couldn't continue to stay away. Our prayers drew him back. Yes, our companions in the church want to hear our voice, but isn't it wonderful to know also that the Lord Jesus wants to hear us praising him and praying to him, both in the congregation of his people and also as we interact with one another outside of formal worship. So in this, the last verse of the song now that we have come to, we give him what he wants. He wants to hear our voice. What do we say? What do, what do we, I mean, of course, it's all those things I was talking about, prayers, praises, all of those kind of things. But if we sum up our whole desire before him, the, the whole desire of the bride of Christ, it's right here in the last verse of the Song of Songs. These few words sum up our great desire as his betrothed bride. We're going to focus on these words today that give him such delight. So give me your attention as I read them to you. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 14, and actually back up. I'm going to read 13 just to refresh you with it again. So this is God's holy and infallible word. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 13, and then 14. So in verse 13, this is him speaking to her. Him speaking to us as his bride. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. And in verse 14 is our response. He he gets to hear our voice. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and infallible word you can see that the song ends with this request for Jesus to come to us. These words, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young roe or a young stag on the mountains of spices, are clearly our words to him, to our betrothed husband, if we are among those who are betrothed to him. The verbs and the word beloved are in the masculine singular. You notice I designated that, like last week I had FS on the words that were feminine singular. So you, it was talking to someone who is a female, a single female. And then verse 14, make case I have MS after that masculine singular. All these words are masculine singular. So this is her speaking to him. That's how we know that. It shows that the man then is the one who is being addressed here by the bride. Okay, in verse 14. These words are spoken then by his betrothed bride. They are not your words unless you are part of the betrothed bride. If you are, if you're a member of the betrothed bride, of the elect bride, then these are your words. Your words, our words, all of us together. You are betrothed to him if you have answered yes to his request for marriage. Isn't that how you become betrothed to someone? If you respond to them and enter into the covenant. Betrothal is engagement to marry, except it's more than that. It's an engagement that includes covenant promises that are binding. So that if you entered into a sexual relationship with someone else when you were betrothed, it would be counted as adultery. It makes you married then, in a sense, 
Remember I told you about that last week, that in our weddings we have the two stages. Usually we do a betrothal like that and a um, marriage in the same service. We, at the beginning we say, will you have this man to be your husband? Will you have this woman to be your wife? That's the betrothal. You're making a commitment that, yes, I will marry this person. And then we go right away just in a short time and we have the vows for the wedding. Do you promise to be a, a loving and devoted um, husband and da 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 You know, we go through the, through the vow to... Uh, so the wedding doesn't occur until you have the betrothal first and then sometime after you have the wedding and at that time the bride takes the additional vows and she moves in to live with her husband at that time and to share a marriage bed with him. In the gospel, Jesus calls all people everywhere to come to him for salvation. Okay? He says, will you marry me in that sense? It is his proposal to us of marriage. He says, come to me, marry me, and I will give you eternal life as your husband. I will pardon your sins through my saving work on the cross. I will baptize you with my Holy Spirit and will cleanse you and transform you to be holy and pure. I will work in you as my betrothed bride and I will will complete my work in you. I will raise your body from the dead at the last day and make you immortal so that you can live forever and ever. You will be my wife and I will be your husband. It's a wonderful proposal of marriage. It's a proposal of marriage and all who hear it must answer yes or no. I mean, they can walk away and ignore it, but that's a no, isn't it? If a man asks a woman, if want to marry, will you marry me? And she walked away, that would be a rejection. It's a proposal for marriage. It's foolish to say no because he is such a great and generous prince. He is a gracious, loving husband, and we should be thrilled to have him. He will love us better than anyone ever could, and he will deal with us in such a way that that we will grow to be a wise and very beautiful bride in his house. Isn't that what everyone wants? Well, this is what he offers. Altogether lovely in his eyes, in his eyes. You, by his gracious work, if you come to him, if you say yes to him and he takes you as his bride, you will become altogether lovely. You say, well, I'm not altogether lovely in anyone's eyes. Well, he will do the work. That's the blessing. He's the one that changes us and makes us lovely. And then he will bless us with the riches of his father's house and all the comforts of that house forever and ever. He will deliver us and protect us from all enemies. If you never accept his proposal, it will be a mistake that you will regret forever. Why did I not respond to him? You will regret it beyond all that you can imagine. You will be left to bear your own sins then. You will have to answer to God. You will not have your husband to say, I have taken care of that for her. I have paid the penalty of her sins. You won't have his offering on the cross. It will be you who has to bear the judgment of those sins. And you will feel the full weight of that, both in your conscience and also in your body. You will bear forever the place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth outside of the presence of God's house. You will receive justice that is due to you for rebelling against God. It's due to every single one of us. The only way to escape is by coming to Jesus Christ, 
by responding to his call, his offer of the gospel, the one who has paid the penalty for all of our sin. But when you are his betrothed wife, these words make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. They are your words. Only if you have said yes and you are part of the betrothed bride are these words your words. Otherwise, you don't really want him to come. Why would you want him to come? He's going to judge you. This is the last thing you'd want. We want him to come, though, if we're his betrothed bride and take us to his house like he said he would do. We want the marriage to happen. We're eager for the wedding. We're in this world of sin and death in this barren wilderness where we have all kinds of enemies and hardships and troubles all around us. And we're eager for the promise to be fulfilled that we might live in his house. Yes, as his betrothed, there is a sense in which we have already been brought into his house, isn't there? We're part of the, the temple of God that he has erected, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as a cornerstone. As we saw last week, another way we could describe it, we've been planted in his gardens. He is working in us and his whole church to make us complete. Just like to use the example of Esther, Queen Esther again, when she was brought to, she was brought to the king's palace. She didn't even meet the king, though. She was preparing in her betrothal to, to be his wife when she went to, to him. So he is doing all that must be done in this world to gather and sanctify us. And when that work is finished, then he will come and he will bring us to live with him. But the wedding and our living with him, you see, is still future to us. With these words, then, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spi- mountains of spices. We're asking him to hurry, to hurry and bring about that wedding day. He is in heaven up there, and we're on earth down here. And yes, we can pray to him. We have access to him in prayer, and he manifests his love to us through his word and through various means that he uses. But we want to be with him. We want to, him to come and to take us with him to be in his palace forever. Let's look at the words of this request more closely. First, we have the word translated, make haste. Now, I said the word because there's one word in Hebrew translated by two in English here, make haste. Word is used about 65 times in the Bible, and it's almost always translated, flee you know, like running away from something or a word that would be equivalent to flee, where you're, you're escaping, you're, you're running away. Yet in this one verse here that we're looking at, verse 14, almost every Bible translation translates it as him coming to us rather than running away from us or running away with us, perhaps. There's a couple of Bible verses that have him asking her to run or, or, or her to run away But this fits the context of him coming to us because she is repeating what she said in chapter 2, verse 17, when they were apart. And she asked him to come quickly to her and to be like a gazelle or like a young stag. And the idea was that he would come to her. And that's what seems to be the clear indication here of this verse. So why use this word that means to flee? It's to emphasize the speed. 
when you're running away as an army that has been defeated and you realize you're defeated and you're running for your life. You're running hard. She's saying, run hard after me. Don't let anything get in your way. If you're running for your life like that, you don't want to trip over anything. You don't want anything to block you. You don't want to meet up with a wall. You, you want to get through however you can. And this is what we are saying to our beloved. We, we want him to come. We are the bride and we want him to come as fast as he can. We want him to come to take us. We can't wait for the wedding when we will be brought into his house to be with him. Second, see how we address him in our text. We say to him, make haste, my beloved. That's what we call him, my beloved. Because why? Obvious, isn't it? We love him. He's the fairest of 10,000, as we've seen in the song. He is upright and noble. He is gentle and gracious. He is full of mercy and truth. He is also a mighty prince. He is a warrior that we can admire and that is able to defend us and defeat our enemies. He is one filled with wisdom who can lead us and guide us. He has unstoppable power. We love him. We cherish him. He is fairer, as we say in Psalm 45, than the sons of men, than all the sons of men. He is without equal He is God made flesh. We behold the glory of God in him. We also call him my beloved because he is ours. We've seen this. We said at one point in the song, I am his and he is mine. Wonderful words. By his grace, we have come to our senses so that we have seen that he is the true God. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people Come to me, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Believe, and you will be my people. So we have come to him, knowing, seeing that the true God, he is the true God who ought to be loved with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have taken him again as our God, whom we desire to obey and serve. Those who do not know him still believe the lie of Satan, that he gave us in the garden at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that autonomy is the way to live. Autonomy, that means self-rule or self-government, where you're the one who makes the rules. You're the one who decides what is right and what is wrong for you. You hear people say that all the time, don't you? Well, well this is what is right for me. If that matters, you try to find life in following your own passions and desires, your own wisdom and your own heart. And that's utterly utter folly. The creator is the one that we must serve and follow. When we come to our senses, then we recognize that. Instead of finding life by living for God, your maker in this autonomy way, you try to find life by living for yourself. As if you are God. In such a case, your beloved is your own heart. It's like uh, Gollum, you know, my precious. You know, it's, it's me and what I desire, my desires, what I want. You know, and, uh, or maybe what other people want collectively that you decide is the way that you will find life. You have nothing higher than, 
the creature to serve. You, you don't know the creator. You, you're alienated and estranged from him in that case. Even when you have religion, you see, instead of when you're on this autonomy way, instead of serving the one and the only creator, you make up your own gods, God or gods. Instead of receiving revelation from the one true God, you choose what you want him or them to be, what you think he or they should be, and you worship them as God. It's still autonomy because you're the one who decides instead of coming to the one who made you, the the one who made you, the one who is a real person. You can't take a real person and modify them to be what you want them to be. I mean, try marrying someone that you really don't like very much, and then you're going to try to, you're, you're going to make them to be different than they are the way you want them to be, and you're going to think of them that way. It's not going to work. You can't design God. He, he can't be designed by you. You have to accept who he is because he is what he is. He's not what you want him to be. It is utter folly for people to say, oh, God's not, I don't think God is like that. God can't be like that. Well, God is what he is. You have to accept. I don't like a God that punishes people. It's too bad if you don't like him because that's who he is. It is utterly ridiculous, but we like to design our own gods because we know that we've offended the true God by rebelling against him. So we'd rather have a God maybe that's just a force that doesn't notice what we're doing or that doesn't notice very well. He's kind of occupied and busy. And he doesn't really pay much attention to little people you know, around and like, like us. Or, or we, we will look at him as one who, who doesn't care about sin. Maybe he sins too and he's kind of caught up with it. Maybe he's got some competition with other people so he's got limited power with other gods or something or maybe with us that we can kind of compete. He's not the most high God. We, we want to do something to, to modify him because we're not comfortable with having the true and high God that we have rebelled against, who is displeased with us, whose wrath and curses upon us justly because of our sin. We don't like that situation. We don't want to have a God, an offended God. So we pretend that we can either make him up or deny him altogether. It's a fool's errand and it will lead to destruction, utter destruction, not a little bit of destruction, utter ruin. But you who have come to Jesus, you truly love him. You love him, the son of God. You love him as he is revealed. You're learning of him. You want to learn of him. You see that God was rightly offended with our sin, but that the son of God came here to redeem you. And you you say, who would do that? You marvel at that. You see how wretched we all were to reject him, and you marvel that he should be so gracious to come and pardon us. And all the more when that meant going to the cross to pay for our sin himself, to bear our shame and guilt. And what is even more unfathomable is that he's asked you to be his wife and to come and live in his house forever. How could that be that he should ask us to do that? Ever since you accepted his proposal then, you have seen how wise and how kindly he has dealt with you. There have been hard times, but after you see how good those times were for you and how he managed them and how he taught you in those times, then you're actually thankful 
for the hard times, when you walk with Jesus, your husband, through them. You can only be grateful for them as part of the shaping that he is doing in your life in this world to prepare you for glory. Yes, he is your beloved, you see. You say to him, my beloved, I want you to come. I don't want an idol that I made up to come. I want you to be the one that makes haste to come to me. You come as you are because you are altogether lovely, because you're the fairest of 10,000. That is our desire. I want you to come and take me to be with you forever, to live in your palace forever and ever. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The third thing we find in our text is the request that we would that he would close the gap that separates us from him. Okay, our words to him here are, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Now, this is the beautiful picture that we ran into before, back in chapter 2, verse 17, that portrays him as a gazelle or a stag running to get to us, running with passion. To, um, to close the distance between him and us as quickly as possible because he greatly desires to be with us. Can you think of Jesus doing that? You say, well, why doesn't he come on and be with us? He is. He said, I am coming quickly. And if we think about it, he is doing that work. He is coming quickly to us. Let's think about it a little bit here. It's a picture here. First of all, the picture that's given is one of beautiful agility, of him winding his way through all kinds of mountains and obstacles. Mountains are obstacles, overcoming every obstacle that lies between him and us so that he can come to us. Now, I remember when we were at 217, I I told you what I think of when I think of this um, this imagery. I think of uh, our little dog, Daisy. And when we go to Peggy's Cove with her, sometimes we'll be in different places and one of us will call her and she runs to come to us. And she's running along at full speed, jumping, jumping across rocks, to places that we didn't think she could jump across and then climbing up a really steep hill with her claws scratching, going up the hill, coming over every obstacle to get to us as quickly as she can. And that's the kind of thing you picture with the gazelle or the young stag coming across through the mountains, coming, getting to where he wants to go. Where does he want to go? He wants to come to the, to the female. He wants to come to the bride. You see, he's coming to, to take us. We're asking Jesus to come to us like that. Don't let anything stop you. It's heartening to think about him coming with passion and desire to be with us. We're asking Jesus to do that. But I want to point out to you a change in the wording here. When we, his bride, ask him to come in this manner before, like a gazelle or like a, 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 young, um, a young stag on the mountains, 217, we said, be like, back in chapter 2, we said, be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. Remember that? Bether. He said, well, what is Bether? It, it means separation. So it was speaking of the mountains that stood between 
us and him, that he has to overcome the mountains that he is scaling and that he is removing or whatever he needs to do in order to get him to us. Now, in 8.14, we, his bride, call these mountains the mountains of spices. Why were they the mountains of separation and now they're the mountains of spices? Well, I would suggest this. There has been progress in the song. There has been change in us and in our relationship with him. We have learned of him as the song progresses. Many things have happened and we have seen him overcome many barriers. These mountains that stand between us and him, the mountains of Bether. We have seen him overcome our stubbornness and sin. Remember when we were in bed and he said, he asked us to come and open the door. He said, oh, I don't want to get up. I don't want to bother. I don't want to get dressed. I don't want to mess with that. We have seen him grow our trust in him, to increase our trust in him and our love for him. We have seen him pardon our sin. This is also true of us as the one bride who spans the ages, okay? It's not just true of us as individuals. It's true of the bride of Christ through all the ages as she is being made complete from generation to generation. We who have the benefit of living in this present time in these last days have seen him overcome the greatest mountain that stood between him and us. When this song was written, that hadn't happened yet. The greatest mountain of separation by going to the cross to atone for our sin, to pay for our sin that separated us from him. And having seen that, it makes that mountain of separation become in our eyes no longer a mountain of separation, but a mountain of spices. The curse that was on us and all the judgment that comes from that It goes from separating us to a a mountain of spices. Now remember that in the Song of Solomon, spices represent what? Either from him or from us, our affection for him, right? Spices are like, our our love is like an aroma, right? And his love to us is like an aroma that fills the room as he comes. It's very, very, very pleasing, Um, Our love is portrayed as a sweet aroma. The idea here is that by going to the cross, he has transformed what was a mountain that separated us from him into a mountain where his love is especially displayed. A mountain of spices. The curse on our sin separated us from God, but by bearing and overcoming the curse, by bringing down that mountain, then it became a sweet aroma of his great love. So our request here is that he would keep coming to us like a gazelle or like a stag, overcoming the mountains that stand between us and him until the time comes that he is able to marry us and bring us into his house. So you see, there's progress being made. What if God, what if he had come for Abraham back in Abraham's day? there would have been no cross. Who would have known of the cross? It it didn't happen yet. And so it would have been premature, wouldn't it? You have to wait until 
things until the, everything is done for the bride to prepare her and to bring her to the place that she needs to be before he comes back. So what are we doing here when we say, make haste and come to me? We're cheering him on as he gathers in all of the rest of us, the, the elect bride that has still, some people have still not been saved. He's not going to come back until all of it. He said, I must bring them all in. He's not sitting back and saying, maybe I'll go, maybe um, 500 years, you know. He's, he's not doing that. He's active. He is coming swiftly. He's gathering in people every day to his kingdom. He's shaping people. He's molding them. He's teaching the whole church through the ages of his way. And as he teaches us the things about himself that we need to learn while we're here, then he's preparing us. It's a work that's necessary. This work here in the world is necessary. Already we have experienced so many things that have taught us of him and that have endeared us to him. That's why we love the Holy Scriptures, because we see, for example, the flood, and we see how his faithfulness in rescuing his people when they lean upon him, when Noah leaned upon him. We've, been, we've seen deliverance from Babel, from famine, the famine that they were rescued from by going to Egypt, and then from bondage to Egypt that, that taught us about our God and about his salvation. We need that in our understanding. And then from the wilderness. See, this is one bride through the ages. Then we were brought through the wilderness where he sustained us and taught us many things. Then we were delivered from, the, uh, from divisions and that we had among ourselves. We were delivered from Babylon and from, from idolatry, from the penalty of sin on the cross when he came, from heresies that arose up in the church when people turned away. We learn through all of that. As he shapes us and molds us, we have times when enemies come upon us and we cry out to him for deliverance. We need all of these things. He will finish all that must be done and then he will come to us. He is coming quickly, as he says in Revelation. But there is so much to do that it takes time. Every member must be brought into the fold and all the while lessons must be taught to us about him and his grace that could only be taught here. There are certain lessons that can only be taught in a world where we have enemies, where we have deprivation, where we have sickness, where we have the threat of death. How could you learn to love your enemies up there? It would be premature for us to go there before we have learned what it's like to love enemies here. We may not do very well at it, but we learn about it while we're here. You see, he leaves us here until the work is complete. He is doing his work with skill and agility. Okay, we picture again the gazelle and the young stag, not stumbling, coming along, going through all the places and coming to us quickly, accomplishing his work because he is passionate about taking us home to be with him forever, more than we are more than we are. So you see that our request is that he would come quickly. How is it then that we could be so bold as to make this request of him the way we do here? 
Isn't it a bit surprising to see us demanding that he would get on with things like this? I mean, how do we find the courage to speak to this mighty king and prince like that to say, you know, get on with it, you know, make haste, hurry up with this. We're encouraged to speak to him like this because we know that it pleases him for us to speak like this. How do we know that? Well, we learned it in the Song of Solomon even. We learned that when he pulled away from us for a time because we had refused to receive him that night when he came and we didn't wouldn't respond, he, he pulled away. Not in spite, but to teach us to, to have proper respect to him. And we don't refuse him when he comes to us. We learned at that time that he saw us when we were looking for him. When we realized what we had done and we went looking for him. And we, we said, where is my beloved? He saw us doing that. And we said, I must find him. And we said, we told about how excellent he is, all of his attributes and everything. Telling, told others about how we, how we must find him. About, and all that he, we told him all that he means to us. He told us afterward, when he came back to us, he said, you know, basically, I saw you. I saw you during that time and my heart was overcome, he said. I was overcome because I, I couldn't stay away. I, I couldn't remain away. I, want, I had to come to you. So much so that, you see, he hastened to come to us. We learned that he loves us. He loves for us to love him. He wants us to desire to be with him and to pray earnestly what he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. We want it to come. Make haste, my beloved. Come, Lord Jesus. Those are prayers that, that honor him and please him. He wants us to be those who are unable to live without him. His purpose is to grow our love for him while we are yet in this world in ways that can only be done here. He is preparing us for eternity when we will always be with him. And then we won't have that where we're crying out and saying, oh, Lord, come to me, come to me. That's what we do here now in in the wilderness. These lessons in the wilderness of this world are eternal lessons. When he is separated, what happens to our love? It deepens. Remember how we saw that in the song? When he was gone, she started thinking about him and how much he meant to her more than she did when he was with her. That's how it works in the wilderness. He would be offended and dishonored if we didn't care when he withdrew. He said, oh, he's gone. Well, maybe he'll come back. I don't really care whether I'm with him or not. No. I'm talking about now the manifestation of his love, right? Not his actual coming at the end of the age. But we want the manifestation of his love to us as we go along. He loves it when we ask him to come to us, to manifest his glory to us, to hasten his coming, to stay near to us. And when we live in such a way as to keep him near to us so that we don't offend him and drive him off. This gives us boldness then to demand that he come quickly because it's what he wants us to do. He's pleased with it. But there's another reason that we address him this way. And that's because we really do love him. And our love constrains us. We really don't want him to come. We say, oh, come, Lord. Come, come to me. Don't stay away from me. I hope you have that. that If you're walking with God and then you dry up, that you cry out to him, Lord, I'm alienated from you. I'm not, I'm not hearing your voice. When I read your word, it's, I'm, uh, it's not clicking. It's not registering with me. It's empty. It's barren. 
I've got a dry wilderness heart. Come to me, Lord. Refresh me. Speak to me. Restore me. Come quickly. Moses, he saw God's glory more than anyone. And what was his prayer that we think of with Moses about this? Lord, show me your glory. Those who have seen God's glory want to see more of it. It just keeps on feeding. We have so many reasons to desire that he would come to us. What are some of the reasons that we would want him to come and come quickly? Charles Spurgeon gave us some reasons that uh, the bride would want him to come. First of all, what I, kind of what I was just saying, it's a result of true love. If you really love somebody, you want to be with them. You don't want to be separated from them. Secondly, it's because it will end the conflict that we're in. We're waging war with sin and with enemies, with Satan, with the world. We have all kinds of hostile enemies that are trying to pull us away from him. And that battle will be ended. We battle with sin here, and, but, but the day will come when the battle will be done. And we want that. We want him, thirdly, to come because of the wonders that will be done at his coming. We will see him raise the dead in that day and change our bodies into immortal bodies. We'll see him wipe away the curse. Remember all the miracles that he did when he was here. You say, well, when Jesus came and did those miracles, couldn't he have just done that over the whole earth? Just brought healing to all the lepers at once? He didn't need to go and be with them. Why did he just do it? When it, it was a revelation of who he is and what he's yet to do. And when he comes back, he's going to do that all at once. We want him to come because when he does, it will be the glory of his people. Then shall the righteous shine forth, the Bible says, as the sun in the kingdom of their father. The manifestation of the sons of God, the beauty of the bride, will be revealed when he comes back. We'll be shocked with some of the people that didn't seem very beautiful here when we see them there. And finally, we want him to come quickly, Spurgeon says, because he will be glorified in that day. He will be glorified. And we want to see our husband honored and glorified. We will beam with delight when he is finally honored, who is slandered and mistreated and abused here, who is mocked by sinners. And then I would add to all of those wonderful things that uh, would cause us to, um, to, to want to come to him, that another one will be that we want to hear, we want that day to come when the result is, so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know, now we may have communion with Jesus in certain ways in fellowship, but what a change it will be to know that this is now permanent, that it's never going to be taken away. So we say, even so come, Lord Jesus, make haste, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of spices. That is our bold request, and he loves for it to be bold. And now finally, I want to show you what a fitting conclusion this is to the Song of Songs. Why is this a suitable way to end? We're talking about the song of all songs. Why does it end with these words? It's a very fit ending. First, because this is how the Song of Songs began. Do you remember in verse 2, after the declaration that it was the Song of Songs, in verse 1, which is Solomon's, verse 2 says, Let him kiss me. The bride comes right on the scene, and she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love 
is better than wine. I told you that his kisses refer to the manifestation of his love to us in this world. He said, Father and I will come and manifest our love to you. That's the kisses whenever he comes and shows us his love. So the song began with the betrothed bride, right? It's a song about her wanting him to manifest his love to us. And then what does she want at the end? Same thing. And so it ends with the bride speaking again. She speaks at the beginning. She speaks at the end. With us asking him as his bride to make haste and come to us like a gazelle or like a young stag on the mountains. We are yearning for him like we were from the start. Only there is a difference. What's the difference? A whole bunch of stuff happened between the opening of this book and the end of this book. He has worked in us, okay, in the words of the song, to mature us, okay, to bring us to maturity. We have been through experiences with him where he has taught us to trust him more. He has shown us more of his love and grace. We have learned of more of his perfections. We have learned more about our sin. We have grown in our obedience and our devotion to him. We have learned more about how gracious he is when we do sin, how he gently and graciously restores us, overcomes that barrier between us and him. It can be very hard at times, very, very hard. But yet, in the end, he brings about what is good. So now, at the end of the song, our desire for him to come is spoken out of a deeper and stronger commitment to him Then when we first said, let him kiss me with the kisses of his lips, it is a more intense desire born out of a more intense love to him and born out of more confidence and trust in him, more safety in him, more knowledge of his excellence. My brothers and sisters, this is how he graciously works in his bride over the years, over the generations, in the one bride, over the generations, he works bringing us individually, as we have seen, from immaturity to maturity, and bringing us as a whole bride from immaturity to, to maturity, where we come along as a child, and then we come to the cross, where the cross is revealed, and then we become mature as we see his love like never before, the bride, all of the bride growing up together in this way. Abraham saw when Jesus came and rejoiced to see his day. He was with the bride. He's part of the bride. And together, you see, we go forward. So our petition for him to come is uh, get stronger and deeper. That's what this song teaches us here as we see that progression. So make haste, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. It is a very fit ending for the Song of Songs. But perhaps even more is a fit ending because it is how the whole Bible ends. We saw that in our reading. This song is about our love for Jesus as his bride. And it ends in the same way that the Bible itself ends. In Revelation 22 that we read, the last chapter in the Bible, Verse 17, what are they doing? Yearning for him to come. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears come. And let him who thirsts. Well, they're inviting, of course, other people to come to him. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. 
Then verse 20, the last verse before the benediction says, he who testifies of these things, that's Jesus, says, surely I am coming quickly. And then the bride responds, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. Now, when we read the Bible rightly, this is where we end up yearning for Jesus to come quickly and to take us to be his wife. We realize that he's betrothed us to himself. We want him to hurry and complete all the work that he must do to gather in and teach us and uh, to gather everyone in and to teach us that all that we need to learn so that we can live in his house forever in happiness. The Bible teaches us that it is Jesus who brings us out of the estate of sin and death when we trust in him and that he is able, the one who brings us to glory. You, that, that's what you see when you read the Bible. You see over and over God's faithfulness in dealing with his people. I really enjoyed doing that sermon series we did a while back, going through all the books of the Bible, because you saw the faithfulness of God dealing with his people and bringing them from glory to glory. If you've read the Bible rightly, then you conclude with passion that you desire for him to come. The Song of Songs ends the way the Bible ends, because it's a song about the bride who is revealed in the Bible along with the Lord Jesus Christ, about her relationship. Yet another reason that the ending, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices, is a fit ending for the Song of Songs, is because this is the desire of God's people in every age. The elect bride is characterized by the fact that she leans on Jesus to bring her out of the wilderness and into his house. We have Adam and Eve, who after the fall were driven into the wilderness, but who trusted God's promise that a son would be born, who would deliver them. They began to lean on the promised son at that time, the seed of the woman that would come. They said, in effect, make haste, my beloved. The slender understanding, the little revelation that had been given at that time, the voice of the bride began to be heard. We mentioned Noah before, receiving the promise of deliverance. How? By leaning on the Lord Jesus when all the world perished in rebellion against the Lord. Noah was brought through the flood, leaning on the Lord, wanting to be with him rather than with the world that perished. Then there was Abraham who left his homeland at the call of God. Why? Because he was looking for what? A city whose builder and maker is God. He and Sarah, trusting God for the son that God promised to them when they were barren, trusted God, the son that would, that would deliver them. They said, in effect, even so come, Lord Jesus. They trusted and looked to him to fulfill what he had said, even though they didn't get an inheritance in this world. Not even the land that was just a type of the inheritance. They knew that there was an even greater city that was eternal. The book of Genesis ends with Joseph dying in Egypt, calling upon his brethren to bring his bones to the promised land when God brings them out of Egypt and promising. Remember what he promised at the end of Genesis? I... I love that when we got to the end of Genesis. The Lord will surely visit you, is what Joseph said to them. He's going to deliver you out of Egypt at the appointed time. But first, he's got to do in Egypt what needs to be done here. 
And when the time comes, he will deliver you. Joseph was so confident. He said, here are my bones. I'm going to die. Take my bones and carry me to uh, the promised land when he does it. Make haste, my beloved, and visit us, you see. And then how does Moses begin when he comes to the people to, uh, sent by God? He says, um, the Lord has visited us and he is going to deliver us out of bondage in Egypt. The time, appointed time has come. He has come to bless us with the promise of the land and the place where we will be governed under his government and where we will be protected and kept by him. Now, we could tell of Joshua and Ruth, Samuel and David and many others that I have left out. All of them look for their beloved to come to them because that is what the bride of Christ does. She has faith. She looks to him to come to her and do whatever is necessary to bring her out of the wilderness of sin and death and to bring her into his house forever. We have the prophets declaring that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, an eternal city of God. This is the hope of the bride from Genesis to Revelation. We have John the Baptist at the dawning of the new covenant, whose father says, the Lord has visited his people. John comes forth proclaiming that the kingdom has come, is at hand, because the king has come, the son that was promised. And Jesus affirms that because he has come, that so the kingdom has come. He says, I am the bread. I am the living water. I am the resurrection and the life. He presents himself as the one that we lean upon to receive life in his father's house. They, they come, uh, we, we come to him in order that we might be saved. The bride does that. The, their song begins then with let him kiss me with the kisses of his lips. And it ends with make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. I'm telling you, this is the church's song from age to age. This is our hope of Jesus Christ, our husband, is our deliverer. My friends, it is also a fit ending, a fourth reason, and this one may seem a little odd at first, because it is the theme of the best fairy tales. Say, yes, that sounds strange. Let me explain. The fact that it is the theme of our best fairy tales shows that it is the longing of the human heart. Now that longing can be twisted and distorted all over the place and perverted, but we yearn ultimately for it. There is a hunger because of our alienation from God, and we yearn ultimately for the Prince of Peace to come to us and deliver us and take us to live happily ever after in his father's house. That's what fairy tales, what always happens, isn't it? More or less. That uh, you know, the, the prince comes, he rescues the bride, he take, or his princess, he takes her, and they live happily ever after. Take one example of a modern fairy tale, The Princess Bride. Wesley comes to Buttercup initially. She is sour toward him, but he wins her heart. And they are, in a sense, betrothed. As he goes away to gain his fortune so that he can come back and take her as his bride. 
So there is a commitment between them, a kind of betrothal that they're going to be together. She hears that later, years later, that he has been killed and she despairs. But then he comes to her and he rebukes her for doubting. How could such love as we have be broken by death? How could the Son of God's love for us be broken by anything, by our sin, by anything? The commitment, the covenant that God made, even with Abraham, when he, he betrothed him and made a covenant that I will bless you. I will bless you and your descendants, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed in your seed. Then he is taken away. After that, Wesley is taken away by the evil Prince Humperdinck, who pretends love for Buttercup, that he might marry her to exploit her for political reasons. He takes Wesley, pretending that Wesley is just not coming back to her of his own volition. He takes Wesley to his torture chamber, and he tells Buttercup that Wesley is not coming back, so you might as well marry me. He doesn't care about you. He's not interested in you anymore. Or he would be here. He would have come back. Yet this time, she has grown in faith. And what does she say? One of the most beautiful lines in that. My Wesley will come for me, she says. She's confident. Even though it doesn't look like it, he's coming for me. I know that he is coming for me. He overcomes the cross, the torture chamber that took the life out of him, and he comes to her. And what happens? They live happily ever after. Remember I told you that that phrase, happily ever after, that comes from, it comes from the church. It comes from people talking about eternal life in the, in the 16th century, in the 1500s. Our best fairy tales copy the Song of Songs because it is the Song of Songs. It is what the human heart really longs for. The longing of every human heart to be loved by the living God who is the most excellent one and to be all that He wants us to be forever. Yet we know that we're sinners and that we've been cut off from Him and that we're unworthy and that we're under His wrath and curse. And in our pride and malice, we do not come when the Son of God comes with His proposal to us. Come to me and be saved. And we say with resentment, no, I will look after myself. Or with malice, we turn against Him. But when we do come, when we do come to Him, then what is our cry? Make haste, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains. Close the gap between us. Overcome every obstacle so that I might go off with you to live in your palace forever and ever. And he says, behold, I come quickly. He is coming quickly. Every mountain will be conquered. And when all is done, he will come. Even so, come. Lord Jesus, the question then for you and everyone 
is that proposal. Have you answered his proposal of marriage? Did you answer with a yes or a no? He promises that of all who come to him, not a single one will be cast out. Are you among those who have come, who have said, yes, Lord Jesus? Is the song of songs the song of your heart? Do these words express your desire after reading the song? Do these words make haste, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of spices? Is that your song? If that is your song, he finds it irresistible and he will come to you. He will come to us. He will come to you in the present time to manifest his love to you day by day as you seek his face. You may have seasons when you're alienated from him, but he will come back to you and he will come at the end to bring you to live in his house forever where there will be no more wilderness times. Truly, he is the fairest of 10,000. He is the bright and morning star. He is fairer than all the sons of men. His love is better than wine. Please stand and let's call upon his name. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise you and how we thank you that you are our God and Redeemer because you came to rescue us. You would not be our God in that way. You would be our creator that we are against, that we have rebelled against and that are cut off from you because of our sin. But Lord, you have become now our beloved. You have become our God because you came to redeem us. You came to rescue us, to take us as your bride and to bring us into your house. And we thank you that you're accomplishing that purpose for your bride, that you're gathering her every day into your, those who are still members that are alienated, You said that you must bring every single one that the Father has given you. And we praise you that you're diligently accomplishing that, that you're overcoming every barrier between them and you to bring them to salvation as you did with those of us who are already saved. And we thank you, Lord, that in addition to that, that you are also sanctifying the whole bride, that there are lessons that can only be learned while we are here in this world that we as the bride of Christ might learn, must learn. Some of us, while we're here, may not learn very well, but we're part of the bride of Christ and the lessons will be learned if we are, part of, if we are those who are leaning on Jesus. And we will come to understand. We will come to learn what you are teaching us all corporately. We thank you, Lord, for your faithful work in us and we thank you that you will complete that work and you will do it quickly, Lord. There's so much to be done, we don't even know the half of it. What a marvel it will be when in, the, in glory we look back on the history here with fondness and we see your faithfulness in all the work that you have done. We see it now to a certain extent, but how we will see it then when there's no longer the darkness that shrouds us. Father, thank you for the hope that we have, for the assurance that we have. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised that you will come. And we ask you, Lord, make haste, O Lord. Make haste, my beloved. Come quickly like a, like a stag 
like a, a, a gazelle upon the mountains of Bether and upon the mountains of spices. We praise you, O Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord our God. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.